0: Welcome to the Good Hard Story Podcast, where we believe that the good story and the hard story can be the exact same story. I'm Katherine Wolf, and I'm a stroke survivor, a speaker, an author, and co founder of Hope Heals. Tune in here every week for conversations about wholeheartedly living in a good hard story. Join me in this joyful rebellion to the darkness where we discover the treasures hidden in our hurting. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Good Heart Story podcast today. Wow, you are in for such a treat. The incredible Dr. Lydia Dugdale is here. If you do not know this amazing woman... She has recently written the book, The Lost Art of Dying, and she is a professor of medicine and the director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia University. And prior to coming to Columbia, she was associate director of the Program for Biomedical Ethics and founding co-director of the Program for Medicine Spirituality and religion at Yale University. She is an internal medicine primary care doctor and medical ethicist. She lives in New York with her daughters and husband. Dr. Lydia, what a blessing to have you here. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine, for having me. I don't pretend that you would know any of my story, um, but I feel like I should give you a a quick um, Reader's Digest version because. It, everything that you are talking about, writing about, thinking about, I'm a little bit of a fascinating case study of. Um, essentially, I had a massive stem stroke at age 26 out of nowhere. It was from an AVM, arterial venous malformation, and 16-hour brain surgery, um, rad- removed nearly half of my cerebellum to keep me alive, 40 days in ICU, um, 11 months MPO, no food, no ice, no water, nothing. Um, To this day, severely disabled with um, do not have much ability to walk, can't drive a car, have a non-functioning hand. Obviously, you're seeing my face is paralyzed on one side. Um, Terrible swallow issues remain. And... um, yeah, pretty severely disabled, and yet um, flourishing, life is amazing. I've gone on and had another baby, um, so I have two two sons now. And my husband and I founded a camp for families where someone has a disability and really have become huge advocates and champions for people living with disabilities. Um, so obviously, end-of-life issues are Fascinating to me um, as I deal with a population of people with disabilities, and because I was typically able-bodied until I acquired a disability at 26 years old. So I'm really interested in just, just really everything you are writing and thinking and processing and seeing. It's it's just so important and honestly, I must say, so horrifying how our world is, um, yeah, dealing with those who are dying. It's tragic and shocking, I must say. Doing even a little bit of a deep dive to prepare for this interview, I'm shook. I'm like, this can't be real. And I guess um, maybe we should start with... How did you get interested in all of this? How did you begin the deep dive into the fascinating study of the art of dying?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for sharing some of your own story. It's, uh, it's really extraordinary how we can come to flourish in the face of setback after setback. And um, certainly that's something I see in the hospital all the time. Uh, it's, it's surprising. Uh, it's, su- it's always surprising and um, wonderful when people who uh, just have faced so much adversity find new ways to be in the world that, um, uh-huh. yeah, that make a difference and that, that um, lead to the flourishing, not only of themselves, but of the people around them. It's incredible. So thank you for your own work. Um yeah, so how did I come to be interested in the art of dying? Uh, uh, there's a few things actually i was I was just reflecting on this recently, which I've never shared in in anything that I've written or uh, or spoken about. but my my mother reminded me of this that when I was very young, maybe maybe seven or eight years old, my father uh, was diagnosed with a kind of cancer that's almost uniformly fatal. Um, and he, and, and, you know, they had four little kids at the time and uh, kind of miraculously, my my father's still alive. Every single person in his support group from 40 years ago is dead. Um, my father's still alive. And I'd actually forgotten about that because it's sort of been so pushed to the background. Uh, I I was so little, um, but now looking back and my mother was just reminding me, that, uh, early on we were having these conversations as a family, uh, that, that dad could die and, and, you know, God's got our family, right. There's, there's, uh, there's going to be some sense that comes out of this, even if we can't understand what it is. So we were having those conversations when I was a young child, but that I had sort of just walled off because my father's done fine ever since. And it's kind of been a non-issue, but now reflecting on it, uh, that probably was very formative early on. Having said that, this is against the backdrop of uh, the story I often tell, which is that I grew up in a family where my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, was quite he was quite a, a a big figure. Uh, sort of he was larger than life. He was hilarious, joking all the time. Um, but he also had been a bomber pilot in World War II uh, suffered a plane crash during flight school when the plane malfunctioned. Then he was shot down during World War II, taken prisoner of war in the camp where, uh, about which the movie, The Great Escape was filmed. And so my grandfather was imprisoned right after The Great Escape was attempted. So conditions in the prison were absolutely horrific because the the Nazis had really clamped down so that prisoners could not escape. And it was really sort of really terrible. So my grandfather. Survived all this, is liberated, comes back to Chicago suburbs, uh, begins his work as a graphic designer. But this this sense of uh mortality always hung about him, which is that as a young man, you know, not dissimilar to yourself in his early 20s, he's facing uh the possibility of death again and again and again. And so that has sort of shaped the way he brought conversations about death into our family, which is that it's just a part of life. So because we know that death is 100%, uh, yeah, usually it doesn't happen to young people, but it could. There's no guarantee. We need to be prepared to think about it. So that conversation was always kind of going on in the background and then combined with an absolutely hilarious grandfather. It was often joked about. And so it it wasn't scary. It wasn't morbid. It was part of life. And so when I got into medicine then, wow, uh, why aren't we having these conversations in the hospital? and that to me was very shocking mm. that the very professionals who work at that space between life and death are not talking to their patients about this and not 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 often not doing a good job at it so i became very interested in that. and why is that why yeah. you know why on earth it's so bizarre yeah, there a few reasons i mean m- medical doctors are trained to thwart death right so mm. it so for many people death is a failure that's certainly true Um, or I shouldn't say that's certainly true. That comes across as being a bit strong, but there is a way in which when all of your energy is marshaled towards fighting disease and thwarting death or delaying death, then death itself feels like the enemy, right? So there's that piece of it. But there's also the very Mm. real fact that many doctors themselves are frankly squeamish about the thought of death, about their own deaths. I had A colleague say to me, you know, I don't know why you write and and talk about death. She said, I myself am so afraid to die. I do whatever I can to avoid the subject with my patients. And you think, well, okay, you know, I've certainly had patients who haven't wanted to have that conversation with me either. I understand that some people, you know, it's like talking with your kids about the birds and the bees. You just would rather not have that uncomfortable conversation. Uh, And some people (laughs) just don't do it they try to avoid it. And, and other people understand right. that, you know, it's part of part of life. You got to have these tough conversations.
0: It's fascinating. I think there's this really interesting link with our deep avoidance of suffering of any kind, that our avoidance of even talking about something that could be negative, much less like living into like, the suffering that's to come and marinating on it. And I I have found there is almost an allergic reaction in our modern world to engaging suffering as a part of life that I'm sure that's wrapped up in this. Of course, we don't want to talk about death. What is the passage in Ecclesiastes that... It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And yet, we we don't see it as better. We don't want to talk about that. But take me to the happy yeah. place, not the sad place. And um, I know from your work, you stumbled upon this fascinating ancient book 500 years or something ago, right? Called the Ars Morandi. Is that Marie-Andi. right? Ars Yes. Maria, okay, you got it. Sorry, uh, tell us about that. I mean, I'm—I
1: would do a Yeah, no. So, uh, so I was very perplexed in the hospital about what to do about the fact that my colleagues and my patients, no one seemed to want to, very few people seemed to want to engage in these conversations, and so I spent a number of years reading as much as I could around my work about how different cultures and different groups and peoples had thought about and anticipated mortality and what they'd done about it. And I was especially intrigued by this this genre of literature that developed in the early 1400s called the Ars Moriendi, which is Latin for the art of dying. I was intrigued by how this genre really came into its own and was massively successful in the West, translated into lots of different languages, circulated widely throughout the West, came to the United States. Um, A genre of literature that essentially might best be described as handbooks on the preparation for death. Uh, The earliest versions, we believe, were uh, connected in some way to the Western Church. This is before you have Catholic and Protestants. It's just the Western Church um, developed during the aftermath of the bubonic plague that struck Western Europe in the mid-1300s, really devastating the population. So people were wondering, you know, how can we ourselves— anticipate our mortality and prepare because there's not necessarily going to be a priest there to do, to help guide us through this. Traditionally, the priests had been the social authorities. They were the ones that led the people through the, the, the period of, of declining health, sickness, and death. Um, this is a largely illiterate population, right? About 85% illiteracy in 1400 in Western Europe. And so, uh, so these handbooks developed. Initially related to the church, but subsequently, sort of, there were Protestant versions, Jewish versions, and then just secular versions uh, as society mm-hmm. evolves and um, people move and and adopt different ways of being in the world. But my point is this: is that I was struck that these were essentially handbooks for the empowerment of communities to wrestle with questions of mortality together in community. It was always done in community. Um, not requiring the social authority who was the priest. Mm -hmm. And I liked this model because I look at the hospital and I say, I've always been in large secular academic health centers. I've never worked in religious centers. I've always been in these big mammoth um, academic health centers. And I see a very diverse patient population and I see uh, problems with the authority. I'm one of the social authorities and I know how little time I have with my patients. I know what the constraints are. And so I thought, wow, if we had a tool that would have appeal to a diverse population. So in the book, while I raise the question of of needing to wrestle with so-called existential questions, religious questions, spiritual questions, as part of dying well, I'm not prescribing in the book a particular religious way of, of viewing this, right? Or I think it's
0: so cool you're doing that. I like writing the line. Yeah, I like Yeah,
1: it. I'm tra- trying to figure out how to speak to a wide audience about these issues that... Yeah. I'm not that edgy. I'm not that cool. <laughs> but like, go girl. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so that's the hours more. I, uh, yep.
0: sp- speaking of, I saw on your recent book, the late Tim Keller endorsed it. And that was super cool to me. I was like, wow, this is really big time. You probably know him, I'm guessing, in New York.
1: Well, he yeah, I mean, Tim Tim has had a profound influence on a lot of people here, obviously, and worldwide, but living here, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Oh, absolutely. Dr. Lydia, I wanted to ask you about Canada. I am just so disturbed by—I think I read that since 2016, Canada has essentially put down 10,000 people. Is that oh, more than
1: 30,000 since
0: 2016? Oh! Oh my gosh! That must have been no. A yeah, time the 10,000
1: was just in 2021 they haven't reported their 2022 data and now we're almost through with 2023 so it's hard to say it's increasing that yeah. it's increasing that trem- that is so people scary people who, who follow euthanasia in Canada uh speculate that probably around 14,000 13 000 to 14,000 were euthanized last year 2022 but oh, we don't have that we don't have the official data yet but sort of more concerning from Canada is the, is, you know, so euthanasia is like what, what people do with their dogs when they put their dogs down. It's the direct injection of a lethal drug into the vein with the purpose of killing the patient. And in, in Canada, as in all countries where this procedure, if you will, is legal, it has to be done at the patient's request. Um, that Mm -hmm. gets a little tricky because. Uh, in Canada, you don't have to be dying. You just have to be irremediably suffering. And you know, Catherine, how difficult it is to define suffering. So
0: I mean, it's almost laughable, yes.
1: laughable that that could be the, the gauge. What on Right. Earth? So there are people in Canada who have sought euthanasia because they can't pay their rent. They have sought euthanasia because they can't get access to palliative care or they can't get the disability support services that they need. So it really is. I mean
0: I have chills as you're saying this. I mean it's, it's so shocking. How how is how how is everybody not talking about this? You know, like
1: where's the church? Yeah. Why aren't we like blowing it up about yeah. this?
0: It's just very There disturbing. is
1: a physician in Canada who is a pulmonologist and he's a researcher at the University of Toronto. Um and his name is Ewan Golliger, G O L I G H E R. He uh, has written a couple of pieces in Christianity Today on this. And he's also written recently a book on euthanasia in Canada for the church. Uh, that book is to be published in November, I believe, of this year. Uh, so keep your eye out for that or check out some of Dr. Gallagher's articles in Christianity Today. But I think there, and I know that there are some clergy. Especially Anglican clergy coming out of Canada who have done some writing on it, but it's extraordinary to me how little people know. And often I'm approached, and people say, "Well, look, you know, it's my life. It's sort of you know, my body, my choice rhetoric. It's my life. I feel as though I should be able to end it if the suffering is so great." And you know, it it doesn't take a long conversation to point to some of the abuses before many people say, okay, this is something I would want for me, but I recognize that um, racial and ethnic minorities, people who have t- traditionally suffered at the hands of the medical system, elderly people who who are losing their cognitive um, you know, reasoning abilities or folks with disabilities, right? There's going to be a lot of people who are going to feel as though they have no choice but to elect euthanasia. Older right. parents right. who know that they're going to be a burden. I've had patients um at, say to me, look, I don't I have my one adult son or I have my you know two professional daughters. I don't want them to have to stop their careers to take care of me mm-hmm. when I'm old and disabled. I would rather be able to end my life. So you see there's going to be a lot of pressure there are and we're watching it happen in Canada in real time where folks who feel like they have no recourse but to end their lives are just electing death. Um, but yeah, it is it's really really horrifying. And and again, I can, you know, I don't know, there may be people listening to this who would say, well, look, I can see how, if the suffering is so bad, or let's just say the cancer is everywhere. Some people I've spoken to said, look, you know, my father had cancer through all of his bones and it was so painful. And we literally watched him just wither away. I can, I can, I can hear people say, shouldn't in those cases it be allowed? I I draw the line at doctors inducing death because, well, I think traditionally doctors have drawn that line that they won't be agents of death. But I also think the so-called slippery slope or the, the sense that people will have no choice but to elect death is going to be so strong um, that, we, that we have to draw the line there. Uh, doctors, uh, healthcare workers should not be involved in making people who seek you know, the, 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 services, um, the care of a healthcare facility, uh, they should not be able to also be made dead in those same facilities. That's just.
0: Right. Matter. So what, what is the difference between
1: physician assisted suicide and euthanasia? Cause there is, a there is difference, a difference. Yeah. Right? So physician assisted suicide is what is legal in 10 us States in Washington, DC. So about 20% of the U.S. population lives in a jurisdiction where physician-assisted suicide is legal. What that means is that uh, a a physician can write a prescription. I think maybe in one jurisdiction now nurses can or nurse practitioners can. Uh, But on the whole, traditionally, it's been doctors write prescription for lethal drugs, usually a cocktail, usually often many drugs, like dozens, around a hundred. And the patient then takes that prescription in a jurisdiction where it's legal to a pharmacy that dispenses the drugs, and then the patient has to take those drugs home, crush them, make them into an elixir, add some you know, the apple juice or something to make it palatable, and then drinks that. Now, what's interesting is that in, in no jurisdiction in the United States is, uh, is oversight required. So once the prescription is dispensed, you can imagine now you have, say, a hundred tablets of a poisonous cocktail. There's zero oversight on what happens to that prescription. There's zero follow-up. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, kids mm-hmm. could get into it in, in an elderly, grandparents' medicine cabinet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, on the whole, we're not hearing about cases, you know, of, of abuse, but we also have no record of follow-up. So doctors are not required, nurses are not required to be present when patients take the lethal injection. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you could, you know, put it into somebody's feeding tube. Um, there, there would be, and the, there's just no oversight. So you know that's concerning. I, I will say this though, when we compare places where physician-assisted suicide is legal, right, having to get the pills and crush them yourself, with places where euthanasia is legal the numbers who elect euthanasia are much, much higher, much, much higher. Right. Um, right. So that's just, that's just true. So in a sense, it's better if we're going to have one of these in the U S to just have physician-assisted suicide.
0: <laughs> I guess so. But I mean, I imagine the other is coming. It's not as though we're not going to eventually end up having euthanasia. Well, I think there's probably zero. Yeah, I
1: th- you're exactly right. Um, the, the, Nonprofit organization that sponsors all of the legislation, to my knowledge, in all of the jurisdictions where legislation has been put forward, is called Compassion and Choices. It used to be called the Hemlock Society uh, after the idea that Socrates died by suicide by drinking the hemlock. Uh, So, so you know, the idea of suicidality was very much in the background of this organization that's been rebranded Compassion and Choices which of course is very clever branding, right? What is better than relief of, of suffering and you do you, right? There's nothing better than right? oh, yeah. So, um, so Compassion and Choices, it, last time I checked their official position, and they're the leading advocacy organization, their official position is only assisted suicide, not euthanasia. However... Having said that, there have been attempts at legislation put forward several times in US states. None has passed, again to my knowledge. But the legislation put forward has said, well, if people, for example, want to die by assisted suicide, what what's commonly referred to as as aid in dying, right? The, The lethal drugs, if they don't have access to their arms or their hands to be able to crush the pills and make an elixir, then it becomes a disability rights issue, because then someone who can't use his or her arms is now unable to participate in assisted suicide, which is legal in that state. And so in those jurisdictions, I'm thinking of Oregon in particular, it's been put forward a couple of times that the the legislation has been, well then you should be allowed to essentially choose the person who will crush the pills and make the poison for you. Um, so far that uh, because people are concerned about the slippery slope with euthanasia, that legislation has not been passed in any U.S. jurisdiction, to my knowledge.
0: Oh, thank God. You know, in, in knowing so many friends through these last 15 years of living with disabilities and speaking a lot, also our camp, I've come to know a tremendous amount of people living with profound disabilities and it it stings so bad to think of people considering them like the ones who need to be put down and the ones who you know I um I I'm fairly profoundly disabled and yet I am having an incredible life. And that's not because of anything other than I believe that I'm here for a reason, that God left me on earth, even in a disabled body, for a tremendous purpose. And um I don't know, it's almost like the lawmakers or the Higher ups who are making these calls must not know many disabled people is the honest truth. Because how could they land that that's
1: okay? Yeah. You know, I think one of the most powerful voices in opposition to the legislation being passed in the US states has been the disability rights community. Uh, I think particularly of uh, there's an organization called Not Dead Yet, and it's very clever, but they're a very strong voice against. Uh, legalization. And, and I think the more that lawmakers who tend to be, who tend to not everyone, but tend to be able-bodied in a sort of very conventional sense, the more lawmakers can confront and hear stories from people who, you know, often every time they enter the hospital, feel like they're fighting for their lives against the doctors. Um, because doctors right. also are are guilty of of a very ableist mindset, right? Who goes to medical school? Right, healthy young people, often from you know fairly secure uh, socioeconomic backgrounds.
0: Uh, You're being really
1: generous. Um, I'll spell it out more. You are definitely not
0: included in this. But a lot of people who are winning in life who are not on the down and out paths, outskirts and being marginalized. Let's be honest; like hurting people is largely who we're talking yes, about. Yeah.
1: So, so we, yeah. So any anybody that <laughs> you can rally from your work in your community to, to tap into what legislation is being passed in your in your jurisdictions or being put on the table, it's really really important to have uh, the voice from the disability rights community uh, to oppose such legislation.
0: Absolutely, and goodness a person of faith like how could we be silent yeah. with this kind of ludicrous slaughter of, of humanity i mean it's just it's just the whole my body my choice this feels like my my body my yeah. death yeah. like i get no, that's to decide right. when i die it's the same that's logic right. and if a christian is going to be about a pro life um Specific. Maybe that needs to be a little bit broadened to include end-of-life issues as well. I mean, my goodness, it seems so yeah. obvious. No. Yeah. It's um it's somewhat of a tragedy how people are are told for things like I can't pay my rent. Um, well, maybe you should not be here essentially. Because the message um so many with disabilities specifically are hearing is you shouldn't be here anyway you should you shouldn't be here and the reality is well if they weren't supposed to be here they wouldn't be here meaning if I wasn't supposed to be here I wouldn't so how, why did you get to make that call you're not god doctor no yeah so no that's no no
1: that's absolutely right and I a good one. I think it's also worth putting on the table that with an aging population every country with an aging population is worried about expanding healthcare costs And so Canada has reported on how much money it is saving from euthanasia. And once you make that an official statistic, we value what we can measure, right? And so if we are now reporting on how much money we are saving by, you know, hastening death, as it were, uh, that's, that's very dangerous. So, so not you know not not to be scared. I dangerous only. I think there's a lot of good work that people can do from an advocacy perspective, and and certainly uh, the disability rights community has such an important voice in all of this.
0: Oh, for sure, Dr. Lydia, your book, The Lost Art of Dying, begs the question: How do we die mm-hmm. well?
1: Yeah, so in this genre of literature that was popular for more than 500 years, uh, what was central to all of the iterations of this genre, there were two things. One was an acknowledgement of mortality. Now, I am a little bit, uh, you know, there's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross from the University of Chicago back in the day, I think 1970s, who studied death and said that the, you know, the kind of final stage is acceptance of death. I don't think we need to accept death. There's a pretty good, I mean, even Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, what does he pray? He prays, take this cup from me, right? Take death away. We don't want death. Mm. Christ did not want to die. And yet, then what was the next part? Yet not my will, but thine be done, right? So." That's yeah. I think paradigmatic for how we should think about death. No, we don't want we don't want sickness. We don't want death. Take it away. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And and mm-hmm. I think that that's the 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 sort of way we need we need to go into this. So central to the Ars Moriendi genre, this idea of acknowledging death, not accepting death, but acknowledging it, keeping the idea of mortality on the table. We don't have to obsess about it. We don't have to, you know, freak out about it. Just keeping our mortality on the table. And then the second piece that was sort of central to dying well through all of the various uh, versions of the Ars Moriendi is the role of community. And, uh, of course, in the late Middle Ages in Western Europe, people were still very much living in parishes. So your community was essentially defined by the parish. We don't have that mm-hmm. in the same way now. Yet, you know, for people of faith, that's often their their church community. Uh, but what, when I speak to broad audiences, I I often encourage them, you know, find who your people are. If you and sometimes people have nobody, well, that then you're not living well. You know, it find someone, nurture that relationship, build community. Start with one, start with two. But if we're if we're in total isolation, then we're not living well because human beings are relational creatures. Uh, in Christian doctrine, you'd say, "Well, the Godhead exists; the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in constant community, right?" So, for people of faith, there's a theological justification for community. Um, for, for people not yeah, of faith, yeah. I can just say straight up: human beings are relational. You don't live well if you're living in isolation. Find some people, nurture relationships. You will live better, and you will die better uh, if if you have people around. So that would be, you know, level one hundred one: how to die well. Acknowledge mortality yeah, yeah. and get some people around you and live well with them. But then there are, um, as I unpack in the book, you know, there are many other ways that contribute to to dying well. And one of the central pieces of the original Ars Moriendi was that cultivating sort of the character traits or the virtues that um, that sort of mark a good life, that mark good living are important to do. So for example, the Ars Morandi would say, if you are are uh, dying in a state of, of doubt or impatience or greed, you're not dying well, but that th- that state of impatience or doubt or greed also reflects on the life you live. All right. So right. if you're dying in despair and hopelessness, well, were you a person of hope throughout your life? Probably not. Uh, so the Ars Moriendi said, look, living well is very much wrapped up in dying well. And if you want to die a person of, let's just say, generosity, patience, hope, and robust faith, you need to practice those Joy. things over a lifetime, right?
0: Oh my gosh, I love this. Yes, I want this genre of literature brought back today to us all. I keep thinking, if you don't want to be a person who dies with deep bitterness, don't live with bitterness. Like learn to cultivate gratitude and yeah, be the person who, when you're dying is not any of the things you don't want to be when you're dying. It's so obvious and yet. Elusive to us. Yes. Ourselves.
1: No, you're right. Really powerful.
0: I don't know if you saw the movie Me Before You
1: years ago. Do you know? Uh, I'm really bad at remembering movies. That's one of my deficits.
0: <laughs> it was. Uh, oh, please. It was a movie um, some years ago where the the main character, man, became a
1: quadriplegic. Oh, I did. I, did. I do know this film. Whether I watched it or just watched yes. the trailer. Yes. And and he becomes okay, a quadriplegic and then they he hastens his death.
0: Right. So he and his nurse fall mm-hmm. in love, and then he decides to go to Switzerland and get put down so that she can flourish and be free and have his money and live a wonderful life. Must be nice. And I cannot I cannot tell you the number of wonderful, sweet. Christian, thoughtful people who thought this was such a great one. And I'm going like, I mean, this is like a perverse, sick, sicko piece that like the quadriplegic kills himself with like no, no, how did you even word it? No foreseen death in the near future. He's just like opting out to save her the suffering of caring for him, which I'm like, that is extra ridiculous because You dude are missing. She's living alone her whole life. She loves you. She'd want to take care of you. This is such selfish thinking. And um, it, it really stirred something in my spirit. I was obviously disabled when I watched the film. It's been since I acquired my disability. And it disturbed me so much that that's kind of the baseline of our understanding in American culture now is like just opt out if it's not ideal. When that notion is
1: crazy. yeah, yeah. Like, a real glorification a ideal. glorification of of choice in a sense absolutely yeah. oh so yeah good. there's a there's a um, fashion label in Canada. Maison something or other that last year did a series of advertisements on on beautiful beauty sort of what is beauty and they did what they featured a woman who was in her early thirties with a chronic illness incurable and they decided to feature a beautiful exit. And they filmed this kind of three-minute advertising scheme, all of these friends on the beach and a final dinner and sort of, it was very picturesque and they're playing and they're laughing and this woman's very beautiful and young and, and then she ends her life. And this was part of their, this uh, fashion labels advertising scheme on beauty and a beautiful exit was, was one of the manifestations of this. But what was interesting, this was last October, I believe, when it came out, when the video was released. But June of 2022, this woman had done an interview and she said, well, you know, I have this chronic condition. If I had access to all of the treatments and support services that I needed to be able to live with my chronic illness, I wouldn't elect Medical assistance and dying, as they call it in Canada. Oh. But I don't feel oh. as though I have a choice, right? So this is this is the world we're in. It's a real glorification of it. You know, here you you watch this video and you think, wow, what's more beautiful than taking control of your chronic disease, having a big farewell party with your friends and and ending your life? What's more beautiful than that is the message of the advertising.
0: I mean, I have chills. I am like beyond shook at the thought. I mean, every single one of those friends around the table in IRL friends would want her to be there at the next beach That's party. True. That's just so sick and twisted and tragic. I um I'd love to ask you this question to wrap up this conversation which is so fascinating. I can't thank you enough. And I really want you to point all of my listeners to all of your work. But let me ask you this first. Here on the Good Hard Story podcast, we believe that the good story and the hard story can be the very same story. They're not mutually exclusive. Obviously, they coexist. So we would love to know what is good in your story, what is hard in your story, and how do you live well in the tension of both in your story?
1: Wow, you needed to prep me for that one. Uh- <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. I'm, I meant to prep you in the beginning. Sorry. You don't have to answer if you don't um, Well, I'll say this. I do think, and you alluded to this, Catherine, I do think that each of our lives has purpose. and. As we seek to discern what that purpose is, the answer often can be incredibly difficult, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I never wanted to be a medical doctor. I often say jokingly, I still don't want to be a medical doctor. Uh, it's a long, it's <laughs> a long road for not being something that I chose myself. Uh, I, I was speaking once to a, a business school colleague about this notion of calling, which has deep resonance for people of faith. But he said to me, uh, and he wasn't a person of faith, he said, Oh, yeah, we, have, we talk about calling all the time in business school. Um, it's just that maybe it's your aunt who calls you into something or teachers who call you in. There's, there's a way in which so many of us are called. I want to say all of us are called, but uh, but life is obviously really difficult for in in some ways such that it obscures I think our ability to to have a sense of that calling. So for me, medicine was very much a calling in sort of all of these ways, such that I couldn't escape. And it's meant then um, doing things that I never anticipated or dreamt of doing. Uh, getting involved in really high stakes issues as an ethicist in a New York City hospital, Um, doing advocacy work I I hadn't anticipated doing, Uh, writing about that, you know, so sort of all of the last 25 years um, is not what I had imagined for myself, but it felt very much like a a path I could not get off, uh, that this was what I was meant to do. And I, it, it sounds like just from what I know about your own story, so, so many of us can resonate with that idea that the purpose of my life now is not what I had imagined. It's not what I had dreamed about as a right. little girl, but we all have a role to play. And that can be really hard because uh, it, it does go up against the, the sort of way we're formed, which is often you do you, like you figure yourself out, live into right. your dreams and live your yeah, truth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, totally. So, but at the same time, as you probably also know, uh, doing what feels like what you're called to is uh, also incredible um, and incredibly rewarding in ways that uh, you can't imagine. And so, yeah. So I try to do do the work that I'm called to do. Um, you know, the best that I can. And hopefully it's a a blessing to others. And I'm sure I've no doubt that your work is. And so just so grateful for the opportunity to chat with you.
0: Oh, likewise. And listen, I think you know this, but Ephesians 4.1, I speak over you. You are living a life worthy of the calling that you've received. (laughs) And I hope you receive that word, that that's the truth. And I have to say, I believe if you have a pulse you have a purpose. I like that. that god god has us all here every one of us to the very natural end for a reason and um for you to kind of spend your life studying and working in that space is glorious i'm I'm so honored that you came on my podcast. I'm like, no way, this is too cool for words, <laughs> because your work is just so important to those of us um, disabled on the inside and outside.
1: Well, yeah, um, that's all of us, all, right? Yeah, absolutely, wow. absolutely. Well,
0: thank you so much, Dr. Lydia. Oh, what a blessing! Please tell us where to keep up
1: with you. Yeah. All the things. Well, I am sort of social media averse. So
0: okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm
1: really bad at all that stuff. I do have a website, com. Yeah, my book's on Amazon, both books. One of them is academic. Yes, tell tell us the name of your the first, first book. The first book is Dying in the 21st Century. That's an academic book. So it really was sort of the academic groundwork for The Lost Art of Dying, which is the book that people enjoy reading more. <laughs>
0: so oh gosh i cannot wait to read it i got it on audible like a week ago and it's queued up next and i just cannot wait to report back with you i guess i'll have to interview you again there you
1: go there you go well thank you so much Catherine. this is a joy
0: oh this was a joy for me as well thank you for being here may god bless you and your tremendous work Thank you for joining us on the Good Heart Story podcast. To learn more about what we are doing, follow us on Instagram at Hope Heals. Check out all things Hope Heals at HopeHeals.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this wherever you get podcasts. And please feel free to share this episode with somebody who needs to hear it. Good Heart Story Podcast is a production of Good Heart Story, LLC. It is produced by Leah Case and Mary Austin Hall. And I am your fearless and fabulous host, Catherine Wolf. Come back and join us every week where we believe that the good story and the hard story can be the very same story. We are with you and for you, friend.